right, fantastic. Well, thanks, Steve, and good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here this morning as we continue in a series that we've been calling Far From Normal. And uh, if you're just jumping in with us today, you can probably tell from the subtitle of the series what it is that we've been doing. So we've been spending eight weeks kind of journeying through the book of Acts together. And uh, if you're not a Bible person, uh, the book of Acts is just one of several books that's contained in the Bible. It's actually the fifth book of the New Testament, and it is just awesome. And we've been finding that as we've been going through this series. What an incredible book. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. We have a reading plan that should be in the program for you. You can jump in on that um, if you'd like to. But basically, uh, this is the fifth week, eight weeks in this, in this series, the fifth week. And let me just say that if you're a guest with us this morning, if this is your first time here, man, like Steve said, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, we hope that you get a chance to uh, grab that gift that we mentioned that's in the cafe for you. And hopefully before you jet out today, you get a chance to connect with a few people in the cafe and uh, that'd be awesome. But uh, because this is week five in this series, let me just say that if you're just jumping in, I would encourage you that if at some point anything we say today is intriguing to you, or if there's questions that maybe come up, that maybe what you would do is go to our website, graceohio.org, and uh, you can download either the videos or the podcasts of our sermons there and catch up with the past few weeks if that's something that is of interest to you. So I'd encourage you to do that if you get a chance to. But uh, in a nutshell, Here's what this whole series is really all about, right? So we're going through the book of Acts, and we said that if you could summarize the book of Acts, what is the book of Acts really all about? We said really that the book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit. So the whole book is about, it's about the Holy Spirit. There's over 56 explicit references that we see in the book of Acts that refers directly to um, the Holy Spirit. And so what the book of Acts is about, it's really about what does a life look like uh, that is empowered by that is led by the Holy Spirit. That's what the book of Acts is all about. Or what does a church look like that is empowered by and that is led by uh, the Holy Spirit? That's what the whole book is concerned with. And so what we've been saying is really what you have in the book of Acts for the Christian, and I know not everyone in this room is a Christ follower, but for those of us who follow Christ, really what we have in the book of Acts when we look at it is we have a picture of what normal Christianity should look like now, the Holy Spirit. And we said the Holy Spirit, really, in the life of, of a person who, who is empowered and led by the Holy Spirit, he redefines normal. And so kind of the big idea that we've been saying every week that we've been together in this series is this. We said the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. And that's what we've been finding in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. That is to say, the extraordinary power of God uh, moving and working through an ordinary person is the ordinary work of the Holy Spirit. It's just another way to say the same thing, that God makes the extraordinary ordinary. And so it's because of that that we've really been going through the book of Acts, and we've been looking at uh, key passages as we've been going through it. And basically, we've been saying, okay, if this, is, uh, if this is what normal should be, right? we've been asking three questions. And the questions are, what should be normal with the Holy Spirit? The second question is, what tends to be normal? 21st century America, Christianity, what tends to be normal? And if there's a difference between those two things, why? Why is there a disconnect? Um, in those. So we've been going through some key passages in the book of Acts and we've been journeying through together. And so today we're going to find ourselves in Acts chapter 12. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump right on in. If you guys got your Bibles, why don't you take them with me? We're going to go to Acts chapter 12 this morning. Acts chapter 12. And if you, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, that's totally fine. We actually have some for you. And you can grab those Bibles. They should be underneath the chairs uh, in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and you can turn to page 767 is where you're going to find Acts chapter 12 in those Bibles that we have provided for you. So you can go ahead and flip there. And, uh, and I'll also just say while you're flipping there that if you're a guest with us and you don't own a Bible, like if you just flat out don't have one, 
or if you don't have a newer translation of the Bible, like maybe your Bible it was your grandma's or something, and it's got a lot of these and thous in it, and you have a really hard time understanding it, just do us a favor. Right? Take one of our Bibles, write your name in it, make it a gift uh, from us to you. We think it's so important that you own a copy of the Bible yourself. So Acts chapter 12 is where we're going to go. And uh, hopefully you're there by now. Let me just go ahead and tell you what it is that we're going to learn today. What the whole book of, uh, what the whole chapter, Acts chapter 12, is all about. I'm going to summarize it for you in one sentence. All right, one sentence. So if you get anything out of today's sermon, just catch this. If, if from this point forward you just take a nap or whatever, fine, just get this one thing. All right, here it is. I'll, I'll summarize it for you in one sentence. God is in control when things seem out of control. Right, so we're going to find in Acts chapter 12. God is in control when things seem out of control. All right. God is in control when things seem out of control. Now, I know that when I say that, for some of us in this room, when we hear that, that sounds like, like maybe a cliche thing to say. And uh, I don't know about you, but I know in my experience, um, there have been times in my life that I've been journeying through difficult times, whether it be tragedy or hardship or relational tension. There's been times in my life when I faced real genuine hardship. And uh, very well-intentioned Christians have come up to me, right? And as a way of trying to comfort me, have told me, what? what? What do they tell me? They tell me, God, God is in what? Control, right? God is in control. And um, I can just tell you from my own experience that sometimes, even though I do believe that that's true, sometimes just hearing that sounds cliche, and at times it's not helpful. In fact, sometimes when we, when we hear that statement, when we tell each other that statement, the way that we hear it, um, it can seem insensitive and maybe even dismissive. Oh, God is in control. That's no big deal. God is in control, right? And I understand that at face value, that sounds cliche. But look, here's the truth, right? The truth is this, though. Man, God is in control, like, like for real. And my, my hope is that today, that when we dig into Acts chapter 12, that we won't just take that truth as some face value, right? That we won't just take it as some hallmark platitude, but that we'll be able to, through the help of God's word and by the strength of the Holy Spirit, that we'll be able to internalize this truth, that, that, that God is in control when things seem out of control. And the truth is, for some of you this morning, this is exactly what you need to hear. God is in control when things seem out of control. And for some of you right now, you're facing stuff in your life. And, and I'm not just talking about little things. I mean big things. Tragedy, hardship, relational tension, marriage meltdowns, marriage over, right? And you're facing these real things, and you need to hear this. God is in control when things seem out of control. And maybe you're in a place, you're questioning the sovereignty of God, which means his control. Maybe for you, you're questioning the goodness of God. Maybe for some of you, you're interpreting what's happening to you right now as an all-out attack that God has launched on your life. God, why are you doing this to me? And how could you let this happen? And I thought you were in control, right? And the truth is that you need to hear this, and I need to hear this. God is in control when things seem out of control. Acts chapter 12, my hope is that we will internalize this, not just take it at a surface value, but internalize it. And I believe this. I believe that if we can internalize this truth, God is in control when things seem out of control, that it has the power not simply to change our perspective on our circumstances. I believe it actually has the power to transform our behavior in the midst of these circumstances as well. And so what I want to do today is I want to describe to you three things, three things that happen when we internalize this truth. God is in control when things are out of control. Three things that happen. All right, I'm gonna give them to you right now and then we'll walk through them together. Here's the three. God is in control when things seem out of control. So pray earnestly, pray earnestly, sleep heavily, and wait expectantly. 
Those are the three things I want to talk about. So we'll just walk through them. So let's start at the beginning. All right, here it is. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. God's in control and things seem out of control. So when I internalize that, what happens? So pray earnestly. It causes me to pray earnestly if I internalize that. Pray earnestly. So let's just set it up. Acts chapter 12, let's go ahead and start in verse 1. It says this, it, says, uh, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. All right, so let's just pause there for a minute. Let me kind of set up what's going on. If you've been with us in the past few weeks, you know the book of Acts basically records for us the way that the church grew. And so the church was growing and growing and growing. And the Bible says that people were being added to their numbers every day. And things were awesome. It was rocking. But the Bible tells us that as the church grew, that it began to gain more attention from the public. And not all of that attention was good. And so as a result of the growing church, the Bible tells us that the church began undergoing some persecution, right? So Christians are getting arrested. Some of them are even getting killed for their faith. And this persecution in the book of Acts, we see that as the church grows, the persecution grows. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 12, we are told that this persecution is now much more targeted. So I want you to notice, look at verse 1 again. It says, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. Now, for some of you, you're like, King Herod. Well, that sounds familiar. I know that name. How do I know King Herod? Now, let me just help you out a little bit, okay? This Herod, King Herod, is not the Herod of the Christmas story. Some of you might remember the Christmas story. King Herod was a man who executed uh, babies. Terrible, terrible thing. That was Herod the Great. This is Herod the Great's grandson, Herod Agrippa I. Very powerful guy. So the Bible tells us that this guy, Herod, started to arrest some who belonged to the church. And what we're going to find is that as this persecution continues... Herod starts to target the leaders in the church. He starts going after the head honchos, the big dogs, right? And so notice if you look at verse 2. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, who's James? Now, some of you know this. Jesus, right, had 12 disciples. And uh, among those 12 disciples, Peter would have been one of them. Jesus had, uh, within his 12, he had an inner circle of three that he would have invested more time, more energy into. And, of course, one of those guys would have been James. So Peter, James, and John. That's this James. So James would have been like, just get this, he would have been like a key leader in the church. He was kind of a big deal. And so Herod goes after James. The Bible says he arrests James, and he kills him. James is dead now. This is bad news, right? God does not look like he's in control right now. James is gone. Well, watch what happens next. Verse, verse uh, 4 it says, after arresting him, or he got, no, I'm sorry, verse 3, when he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, so, so Herod did this, and apparently there was a bunch of people that really liked that Herod did this. There's a lot of people that were opposing the church, right? And so per Herod saw that this approved the people, and so he proceeded to seize Peter also. So, so Herod, right, he's a political figure, so he's always trying to up his kind of his political, you know, his uh, public opinion rating. And so he, he sees that people like that he kills James, so you know what he does? He goes after Peter. And some of you guys know, in our past weeks, Peter was like number one in the church. He was like the head dog. So Herod's like, we're doing it. And so he gets, he gets Peter. Look at verse 4. It says, after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Just a little quick math, that's 16 soldiers sent to arrest 
Peter. Seems a little excessive, doesn't it? As some of you might know, reading in the past chapters, it's kind of hard to keep Peter in prison. He keeps getting out. So Herod's like, that ain't happening. So he sends 16 soldiers to Peter. And then it says, the end of verse 4, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. What that means, by the way, when it says he meant to bring him out to trial, was that he meant to kill him. He meant to give Peter the same sentence that James had. He was going to kill Peter. Now, I just want you to picture this for a minute. I want you to imagine being part of this church. Just imagine this, right? So things are growing, man. Things are awesome. Every day, new people are coming. It's just really, really exciting. But then all of a sudden, persecution starts. And it starts to get a little uncomfortable. But then the leaders start getting arrested and killed. James is gone, man. He's killed. And now they got Peter, the head dog. And he's surrounded by 16 soldiers, and he is awaiting the same sentence that James had. Now, let me just ask you a question, all right? Let's just take interpretation by vote, all right? How do you think, just out of curiosity, how do you think the church felt about this whole scenario? Thumbs up or thumbs up? you think they liked it or they didn't like it? What do you guys think? Public? Yeah, all right, yeah. I'm with you on that. I'm pretty sure that these guys were not real excited about this, right? You talk about uncertainty, you want to talk about a time when it looks like God is not in control. When you read this passage, what it looks like, it looks like Herod's in control, doesn't it? And I can only imagine what these guys are saying. God, what are you doing? And I thought, I thought you had this. I thought you promised that you would build your church. I thought that you promised that you would grow this thing. And now Herod is trying to, he's got Peter now, and he's going to kill him, right? And man, the situation looks bleak. And if there ever was a time where things look like they were out of control, this would be one of those times. And so, man, this is, this is tough. What are they going to do? What's the church going to do? Terrible times. James is gone. Peter's in prison. Times of uncertainty. God looks like he's out of control. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Well, I want you to notice what this church does. Look at verse 5. This is cool. I love verse 5, by the way. This is just awesome. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. I just love that. When I read that, I just underlined it because like, that's just a cool verse. That's like a showdown verse right there. Isn't it like verse one to four, setting up the villain. Herod was this mean dude, you know, and he arrested James and had him killed. And he was all about the public and what people thought of him. And he got Peter, and he got 16 soldiers. Now he's going to kill Peter. And he's like, what are you going to do about it? You know, and then in verse five, it's the showdown. It's like, yeah, 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 Peter was in prison, but the church was praying. I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound like the most intimidating thing in the world, does it? Right? Herod's like, I got James and I killed him, and I got Herod and I got Peter and I'm going to kill him too. What are you going to do? And they're like, oh yeah, we're going to pray about it. Not real tough, right? But but listen, I, I think this is so key because why are they praying? Why are they praying? It's because they they've internalized something that I think for many of us we haven't internalized. They know that God is in control. And because they're so certain about that, their first response is to pray. I mean, we think about it in, mo in our modern minds. We're like, is that really the best use of your time? Is that really? I mean, the church is in dismay. Everything is shuffled around. Peter's about to die. I mean, wouldn't it be better use of time? Maybe instead of praying, maybe you ought to be planning, right? Maybe you got to get ready for a new strategy. Who's going to be the next leader after Peter? How are we going to hold this thing together, right? That's what we would do. Uh, maybe it would be better to spend your time plotting. Let's, let's stage a coup. Let's, let's run in and, and you know, get Peter out of prison, and we'll, we will get him out of there and go into hiding. Or maybe it would be better just to start preparing, to plan, to strategize. What should we do next? 
But I want you to notice that that was not the church's first response. Their first response, their first response was to pray. And I want you to notice, this wasn't like a little prayer meeting with some, you know, with some muffins and some pumpkin spice latte, all right? These guys were eagerly praying. Look at that word right there. This is awesome. But the church was earnestly praying. Earnestly. That's a good word, right? It's almost like you got to say it with your throat. Earnestly. You guys give it a shot, all right? The church was praying what? What? Earnestly. Earnestly, all right? It's a great word. In the Greek, literally, the word is, uh, it's a medical term, and it means to be stretched to the limit. The idea is to stretching your muscles all the way to the limit, and that's the medical term that's used here. So when the Bible says that these guys were praying, this wasn't like, oh, let's just say our quick prayers. No, this was like, we are stretching ourselves out we are expending our energy. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out to God. That's this picture, man. And these guys are praying. They are pouring themselves. Oh, God, you have to hear us. And why, 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 why is this? They're convinced that God is sovereign, that God is in control, even when things seem out of control. And so because of that, they know the most powerful thing they can do, the most powerful weapon they have, is to talk to the only one who can actually do anything about it, God. But the truth is, you guys, when we face uncertainty, when we face times where it looks like things are out of control in our own lives, we naturally pour ourselves out anyway, don't we? We pour ourselves out. We stretch ourselves out in something. For some of us, we stretch ourselves out in worry, don't we? We just, we, we worry and worry. And we, we replay every possible scenario. And, and we, we, just, we just are so anxious and so worried about, we pour ourselves, we stretch ourselves out in these things. For some of us, we stretch ourselves out in our planning. We just plan and plan and plan. We get the Microsoft Excel sheet out. We try to figure out every possible scenario, and we plan and we plan. For some of us, we pour ourselves out in our research. Right? We go talk to this person, and we talk to our mother, talk to our mother-in-law, and then I get a second opinion from the doctor and a third opinion from that one, and then I go to Google, and I Google the thing, and I try to figure out, and we pour, oursel we pour ourselves out in something. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong. It's not wrong to prepare. It is not wrong uh, to plan. It's not wrong to, to, uh, to do research and get counseling, right? All of those things are not bad things. They are, in fact, they're biblical things. But hear me, they're secondary things. They're secondary. And, and what do you see the church do? They pray, not as a last resort, as a first response. See, oftentimes what we do is we pour all of our energy out into our, our worry and our planning and our preparing in our research, and then maybe, just maybe, if we have a little bit of time at the end and we're out of options, we'll pray as a last resort. That's not this church. First response every time. Why? Because they've internalized this truth. God's in control when things seem out of control. So listen, here's the truth, right? One ounce of prayer, if God is really in control, one ounce of prayer is more powerful than 10,000 pounds of worry. One ounce of prayer is more powerful and more potent than 10,000 hours of my preparation. Because if God is sovereign, if God's really in control, then man, if you internalize that, my first response is to be to pray. Some of you guys know that here at the Medina East Campus, we've been coming around for a while. One of the things we talk about so often is kneeling first. We talk about, man, we want to be a kneel first kind of church, a church where, man, we pray first. It's not a last resort, it's our first response. And when you see, when you actually read through the book of Acts, some of you have been reading through the book of Acts, I don't know if you've noticed, every time the church is facing something, what do they do? They go to prayer right away. It's because they understand 
If God's in control, this is the most powerful weapon that we have, is prayer. God's in control and things seem out of control, so pray earnestly. Here's a second thing. I love this. I love this. If you're taking notes, you can jot it down. God's in control when things seem out of control. So sleep heavily. So sleep heavily. I love this next part of the story. This is just too good. Verse 6. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial. Okay, so let's just read between the lines there. Herod was going to bring him to trial the same way he brought James to trial. So tell me, what does it mean when you're going to bring him to trial? Right, he's got to kill him. And, and so get this, Peter is not um, days from death, not like months from death. He is hours, if not moments, from facing death. All right? And so here he is, the night before, he was to bring him to trial. What's Peter doing? <laughs> this is awesome. Peter was sleeping. Yeah, he's just sleeping, man. Sleeping between two soldiers bound with chains and sentries who stood guard at the entrance. Now here's a picture. All right? Peter Moments before his death, he is chained to two guards. He's lying on a prison floor, and he is passed out asleep. And not only is he asleep, the Bible tells us, but he is sleeping heavily. I mean, he is like out like a, like a baby. But I, should, I don't know why we say sleep like a baby. Babies don't sleep well. He's sleeping like a teenager, right? And uh, my goodness, he is just like out. And how do we know he's, he's so heavily asleep? Well, if you read the text, it's pretty obvious Watch what happens. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. All right, so we're going to find out the reason this angel came was to release Peter out of prison. This is really awesome, right? So the, the Bible says that, that uh, the angel shows up and the first thing the angel does is he shines a light. And my guess is, I don't know, this might be like a gentle way of trying to wake Peter up. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a pretty heavy sleeper. But if you come in and flip the lights on on me when I'm sleeping, I'm up. It's, it's, the light will wake me up. And so, so the Bible says that the angel comes in and shines a light. Like, Peter, come on, buddy. And, and it, it ain't having it. Peter's just still out cold. And, and why do we know that? Because look what happens um, after he shines a light on. It says uh, he shone a light on the cell. And then the next thing, he struck Peter on the side. Right? And I just want you to know the word strike there is actually the same word that's used later on when the angel of the Lord strikes Herod dead. So this isn't like a... Hey, Peter, this is like a Peter, get up, you know? And so he's like, we'll try the light, doesn't work. And then he kicks him, get up, Peter. So Peter's out, man. And so Peter gets up, and then watch this next part. This is just so awesome. He struck him on the side, woke him up. Get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Total miracle. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. So Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you. I, I, I almost, the, the, when I read this, I imagine myself talking to my half-asleep toddler. Get up, put your clothes on, put your shoe on. That's the wrong foot, you know. And uh, he's like, Peter, get up, put your, put your clothes on. So he, Peter did it. And the angel told him, uh, as the angel told him, and look at verse 9. I just love that it says this. Peter followed him out of the prison. This is so cool. But he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought that this was, he was seeing a vision. All right, so I want you to understand, Peter thought this was just a really weird dream. This whole, this whole thing, he's like, this is strange. <laughs> Ate too many burritos last night. This is awkward, you know, this is weird dream. He was in that stage of like, you know, you guys ever been in that stage when you're like kind of halfway awake and halfway asleep? Some of you are like that right now, actually. And you're kind of in that state. And I'm telling you, when you're in that state, isn't it true? You end up saying some of the funniest things. 
And some of the strangest stuff happens. And I, when I was reading this a while ago, I was actually reminded, I remember one time in particular when I was in high school, I was, uh, I was looking for my, my mom. I was at, we were at my house, and I was looking for my mom to ask her a question or something. And I walked into the living room. My dad was watching TV. I was like, hey, Dad, have you seen Mom? And um, as soon as I asked him, I didn't realize it, but he was completely passed out of sleep, you know? So I was like, oh, okay. So I started to walk away. And as I was walking away, my dad goes, hey. And I was like, uh, what? And he's like, jazz Dr. Bungalow? Then I asked Dr. Bungalow what? He's like, Jazz Dr. Bungalow? I'm like, so later on I was like, Dad, who is Dr. Bungalow? And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, what were you talking about? And we just were laughing about it because he's like in that halfway. So that's what Peter's doing, man. He's like in that weird dream sequence he kind of state. And here we have it, man. Think about this crazy picture, right? Here's Peter. And once again, think about it. James is dead. James, by the way, not only would have been a co-leader with Peter, he probably would have been one of Peter's best friends. Peter, James, and John, those guys were like intimate. They, they knew each other so well. They were with Jesus all the time. They'd spend years together. James is dead. Peter's arrested. He's got 16 soldiers surrounding him. He's chained to two of them. He's on a prison floor. He's moments from his death, and he's sleeping heavily. Here's my question. How? How is that possible? How can someone find themselves in that circumstance and sleep like he did? Now, here's, here's just my theory. I've got a theory on it. Right? My theory is that Peter has probably internalized this truth by now, that God is in control when things seem out of control. My guess is Peter's experienced enough, he's probably seen enough to know, I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. But quite frankly... I don't even care anymore. I'm going to bed. He's, he's, he's learned enough to know that God is trustworthy. You know, when I was reading this story, I actually started thinking about the difference in my, my boys. I got two boys, right? I got a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I don't have any girls right now, thank God. I'm not sure what I would do with a little girl. If you have a little girl, I'm praying for you. Um, and the reason I'm happy I don't have a little girl is, number one, because I'm not entirely sure how to interact with a little girl, just to be honest with you. And number two, um, if my daughter, if I had a daughter, if she looked anything like my wife, I do not have enough money to buy enough weaponry to protect her. So that's just, so I'm like, I'm not even doing it. So anyway, my two boys. Boys are relatively easy, at least at this stage. You know, if we want to interact with them, we wanna, if we want to uh, have some serious quality time, I just throw them around. It's pretty easy. Just pick them up and throw them, and they love it. And, uh, and so one of the things I do right now, and I'm sure a lot of you dads do this too, is I put my boys up on my shoulders, right? So I put them up on my shoulders. They love it. And, and uh, when they get up on my shoulders, I tell them, I'll say, okay, put your arms in the air. Put your arms in the air. On the count of three, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll throw your legs up, and then you'll just be dangling back there. You know, it'll be kind of fun. And, uh, and so I do it with my kids. And it's interesting for me to watch the response of my three-year-old to my five-year-old. So my three-year-old is always asking, Dad, can I get up on your shoulder? I'm like, sure. So I put them up on my shoulders. And he, when he gets up there, he always gets so scared. And so he will hold on to me with like a death grip. And he's always right around my neck. So I'm like, I can't breathe, you know? And he's just holding on. And, uh, and I'll say, okay, buddy, put your hands in the air. And the moment I tell him to, he just starts crying. He's like, no, no. And because I'm an antagonistic father, I will start lifting his legs up 
And so he's forcing that crisis of, and he will take his little fingernails and he'll dig them into my cheeks and just, oh, no, 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 and start crying, you know. And I'm like, buddy, buddy, it's fine. I got you. I'm not going to let you go. I promise I won't let you go. To this day, he won't do it. He won't let go, right? Now, my older son, he's five, and he used to be like his brother. He's a couple years older now, right? So when I get him up on my shoulders, it's a different story, man. I put him up there. He's like, Dad, get me on your shoulders. I put him up there. I'm like, put your hands in the air. He's like, yeah, you know? And before I even say it, he just throws himself backwards. Sometimes he does it before I'm even ready, you know? I'm like, whoa, you know? And, uh, and I get him, and, I, and what does he know? See, he knows something. Over time, he's learned. He can trust Dad. I'm not going to drop him, and I pray that I don't accidentally <laughs> drop him on time. But I, you know, I'm like, man, you know? And, um, and he's learned something over time. He can trust me. He's learned that, and he rests in it. Because of that, he completely rests in the midst of that tense situation. I put this down in my notes. If you're taking notes, maybe you want to write this down too. I put God's past faithfulness and his future promises bring rest in the present. God's past faithfulness and his future promises, those two things combined, they bring rest to me in the present. See, I think, I'm just guessing, but I'm guessing for Peter, just guessing. He's probably sitting in this circumstance. He's probably like, all right, well, James is gone. I'm in prison, about to die, 16 soldiers surrounding me. My guess is probably like, yeah, I've seen worse. It's been worse than this before. My guess is Peter starts thinking about the past, starts thinking about God's faithfulness. He probably starts thinking about the time in Mark chapter 4 when all the disciples were on a boat and Jesus was on the boat too and they were certain that they were going to die because the storm was so bad. You guys remember this? And Jesus, what was he doing? He was sleeping. So Peter and the disciples go down. They're like, Jesus, what? You must hate us. Why are you letting us? You can save us and you're just sleeping? And remember what Jesus does? He gets up, comes out, rebukes the wind and the waves. That's just awesome. Everything goes still. And then remember, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you guys, haven't you learned by now? Haven't you learned by now? Trust me, man. I got this, right? Peter's probably thinking, I've seen worse, man. I remember when Jesus was crucified. I remember when we thought it was game over and we all went into hiding because Jesus was gone. Oh yeah, but then he rose from the dead. That wasn't really part of the equation in anyone's opinion. And he rose from the dead. So Peter's like, you know what? Here's the, here's the reality. I know God's faithful He's like, and I also know God's promises. I might die tomorrow, but my guess is Peter's like, yeah, but death isn't the worst thing. You know, in the Bible, it tells us that we should fear not him who takes the body, but him who can take the body and the soul. Peter's like, they might take my body tomorrow, but my soul is secure. That just means I get to go to heaven. That ain't a problem. So my guess is that Peter's probably sitting in the situation. He's saying, I know what God's done for me. I know the promises that God has for me. So I'm going to bed, right? If they're going to cut my head off tomorrow, I want to get a solid eight hours of sleep so that my head looks nice on the platter. Right? I don't want to have bags under my eyes. He's like, I'm going to bed, man, and he rests in the sovereignty of God. I'm just telling you guys, some of us, we need to learn this. We need to learn this, that if we are genuinely trying to live our lives in a way that honors God, not perfectly, right? but if we are genuinely trying to live our lives in a way that we're responsive to the Holy Spirit, it allows us, it doesn't just teach us how to pray, God's sovereignty. It also teaches us how to rest. You can rest. God's in control. He's going to take care of it. He's got it. So God's in control and things seem out of control. Pray earnestly. Sleep heavily. Here's the last one. Wait expectantly. 
Wait expectantly. All right, this next thing that happens is too good not to be true. It's just amazing. Verse 10. So the angel, remember, the angels broke Peter out of prison, so the angel's still leading half-drowsy Peter out of prison. Verse 10. They passed the first and second guards, and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. It's just so cool. And they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Verse 11, then Peter came to himself. So now Peter's finally awake. Verse 11, he's awake now. Then Peter came to himself and he said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that the Jewish people were hoping would happen. All right, verse 12, when this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people were, had gathered and were praying. Okay, so Peter comes to his senses, realizes he just got broken out of prison. He's like, all right, I'm out of prison. And then he realizes, oh my gosh, I'm out of prison and I'm in the middle of the public, so I need to go somewhere safe. So he goes to Mary's house, the Bible tells us, and Mary's house, the Bible says there's a bunch of people praying there, right? Look at verse 13. Peter knocked on the outer entrance. Now, let me ask you a question. Ex-convict, right, broken out of prison, late at night, how do you think he's knocking? Just out of curiosity. I'm gonna guess it's probably something like this. I'm guessing he's not pounding on the door, right? He doesn't want anyone to know he's there. So he knocks on the door. This is, this is great. And then a servant girl named Rhoda answered the door. Rhoda, verse 14. When, this is so awesome. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it. And she exclaimed, Peter's at the door! All right, so get this in your mind, right? So Peter got out of prison. He's at the door. He's knocking on the door. She's like, who is it? And he's like, it's Peter. And when she hears his voice, the Bible says she's so excited. She's like, oh, it's Peter. And instead of opening the door, she runs into the prayer meeting. She's like, you guys, Peter's here. What am I supposed to do? You know, and just runs in. I don't know about you guys. When I read this, the only thing I think is, man, poor Rhoda. I mean, she made the Bible. But this is the only thing that she's known for. <laughs> Poor girl, you know? I'm just telling you, there's a lot. Of, when I go to heaven, I'm so excited about getting to heaven one day. Just so pumped. And there's so many people I want to meet, so many biblical characters. Like, I can't wait to meet Joseph. That dude is awesome. I want to meet King David. I'd love to meet Peter, you know, meet Paul. I'd love to meet these guys. But one person I'm really excited about meeting, honestly, is Rhoda. <laughs> Seriously, can you imagine? I'll be like, that's her. And I, I've got it all staged out. I know what I'm going to do. Tell me what you guys think about this, all right? I, I have a plan. I'm going to go up to Rhoda. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, hey, Rhoda, I got a joke. <laughs> knock, knock. <laughs> oh, man, that'd be awesome. You know how they say, like, you know, there's like uh, a folklore that St. Peter guards the gate of heaven, which is not true. The Bible doesn't say that. How funny would it be if he did, though? And Rhoda comes up, and he's like, uh-uh. <laughs> Payback. I'll go tell everyone you're here. <laughs> Says, you can't make stuff like this up. It's so good. Anyone who thinks the Bible's boring doesn't know what they're talking about. So anyway, so get this, right? Peter comes in. He's, he comes to this meeting. Now, just think about this for a second. He's coming to this meeting. The Bible says they're praying, right? Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think they're praying about? I don't know. I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Probably for Peter. Right, Peter's in prison. He's about to die. So imagine this prayer meeting. Just imagine it together. Okay, so they're praying. 
God, get Peter out of prison. Lord, please. And the Bible says they're praying earnestly, right? So they are stretching themselves out in prayer. God, please, we know you can do it. Please, we know you can do it. Get Peter out of prison. Get Peter out of prison. Please do it. Get Peter out of prison. Rhoda comes in the room. Peter's here. Look at their response. Verse 15. You're out of your mind, they told her. They're like, you're crazy, Rhoda. Shut up, Rhoda. We're praying, Rhoda, for Peter to get out of prison. Rhoda. <laughs> that ridiculous? It's awesome. So when they kept insisting, they kept insisting on it, so they said, this must be his angel. Now, strange, quick fact, strange theology back then. They believed that, our guardian, that everyone has a guardian angel. That's what they believed. And they believed your guardian angel looked like you. So they're like, it's not Peter. Like, it's, more, it's probably more reasonable to think that it's his guardian, his angel, right? And, uh, but then look at this. But Peter kept on knocking. What a funny picture. Peter's the whole time they're having this argument whether Peter's at the door. And Peter's like, guys, guys, you know? And so he's knocking. And then when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. The literal Greek word is to be outside of yourself. They were outside of themselves when they saw it. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, and he described how the Lord brought them out of prison. He said, tell James, not the same James that was just killed, different James, James, the brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James, tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and he left from another place. Now, I'm going to have to summarize for you what happens next for time's sake, but here's what happens, if you, and you've got to read it this week. What happens is the Bible tells us that King Herod the next day finds out that Peter is escaped from prison, and he's so furious, he kills all 16 of the soldiers that were assigned to watch over him, kills them all. And then the Bible tells us a really strange situation where Herod is in such a place where he begins, uh, giving, uh, begins exalting himself and receiving worship from people. And the Bible says that Herod, as he's receiving this worship from the people, that an angel of the Lord comes and strikes him down and kills him. And so Herod is dead. Beginning, beginning of the chapter, Herod looks like he's in control. End of the chapter, Herod is a speed bump, right? Nothing. And then the Bible ends, this whole story ends with verse 24. And I just want you to look at verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish. Here's something that you learn in the book of Acts. If God makes a promise, he keeps it. And there is nothing that will stop his plans nothing that will thwart his ways. There is no one that will get in the way. At the beginning of chapter uh, 12, what do we see? Well, it looks like God's not in control. By the end of the chapter, we are certain God's in control even when things seem out of control. And God is a master, and he knows how to do, he knows how to work in every circumstance to maximize his glory, to give himself the most glory. And he does it in this circumstance as well. Listen, for you and I, we need to know this, okay? If God is in control, even when it seems like he's not, when it seems like things are out, we can pray earnestly because he's the only one who can do anything anyway. Right? We pray earnestly. We sleep heavily because we can rest in his faithfulness and his promises, and then we wait expectantly. Listen, it's coming. If, you're, if, you, are, if you are dedicating your life to following Jesus Christ, if that's the ambition of your life, man, you wait for it. God's going to bring it. And what he promised, he's going to give you. And maybe not today, and maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in a month. And listen, maybe not in this lifetime. But he will give it to you, what he promised. His promises are good, and everything he says endures. So God's in control when things are, seem out of control. Pray earnestly, sleep heavily, pray expectantly. Let's pray together. 
Jesus, I just want to say thank you for your word to us this morning. Man, it's life-giving and enriching, and um, you're the one who told us in the book of Hebrews that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, that it cuts through joints and marrow, it judges the hearts and attitudes of, of our heart, the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, God. And this morning, God, I pray that you would help us not to just simply take this truth that you're in control at some surface cliche value. I pray that we would believe you internalize this truth and as a result of that i pray that prayer would be our first response and our last resort help us to be kneel first kind of people what i pray that we pray expect uh, pray with eagerness lord pray earnestly like we see these uh, christians doing because we believe that you are in control if that's true prayer is the most powerful weapon that we have god i pray we turn to you god i pray you'd help us to rest help us to sleep heavily hypothetically speaking help us to rest in you god i ask you that we would um lord for all of our toiling all of our anxiety all of our planning and all of our preparing which are not always bad things i pray that our first response would be to trust you and lord i ask you that you'd help us to wait expectantly if you promised us things god that we can guarantee that you will deliver on what you promised because you're god you said i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and you prove that Lord, you said, um, Lord, that for those of us who put our trust and faith in you, that you've given us the right to become the children of God, that we will, we will inherit eternal salvation. God, you promised it to us, and we believe you'll give it to us because we trust in you. So I pray for us, as for those of us who follow you, God, that you would just help us to trust you, to believe this and internalize this truth. You're in control. God, for the person that's maybe investigating you, it's not real sure if the whole Christian thing is legitimate, if they're really pursuing that. I just wanna say thanks that, you, that they're able to be here this morning. God, it's such a privilege to be able to be part of, it, of that investigation. And I pray that you would not only add clarity as they're searching you, God, but I also pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict their hearts as well. Lead them into your truth. Jesus, I, I know that sometimes, unfortunately, like Herod, some of us find ourselves fighting against you. There might be some here today, God, who are fighting against you. They are uh, deliberately living in opposition to what you want. And um, Lord, I know we're not perfect, but um, for those who are deliberately turning against you right now, Father, I pray you would soften their heart. Help us to take a lesson from King Herod, God. Living against your plan is the worst idea ever. And so I pray, Jesus, that we would be submissive to what you want for us, trusting your grace, trusting your sovereignty and control. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.